0: If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, have the sharpest opinion. There's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM 560, the answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, uh, our next guest. I'm sort of brought here on false pretenses, Amy. What do you mean? Because uh, we're going to talk about his book, Less Oil or More Caskets. But what I really want him to do as a former mayor of Indianapolis, I want to bring him here. I want to keep him here. I want to force him to run for mayor of oh, Chicago. That's right. Or some higher office here. I've We've implored former Governor Mitch Daniels, former Governor Mike Pence, Governor Eric Holcomb, so many people from Indiana to who could either execute the order or have the influence to scramble the National Guard to have Indiana invade and take over Illinois, make it part okay. of Indiana. Nobody's taken us up on it. So now that we have a Hoosier here, or as you call them, Indianans, <laughs>
1: Okay, I made a mistake once, and I called you guys Indianans, and he he won't let me live it down.
2: I haven't heard that for a while. Yeah, But yeah. you've heard it before, right, from oh, a great mind, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So usually the East Coast. Yeah.
0: He is, uh, exactly. He is Greg Ballard, former two-term mayor of Indianapolis, retired Marine Corps lieutenant colonel, who served 23 years in the Corps, including uh, in the Persian Gulf War. And uh, his book is Less Oil or More Caskets, The National Security Argument for Moving Away from Oil. Greg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate Great it. Great
2: to be here. Thank you so much. So
0: just uh, lay out the thesis for your book.
2: Yeah, I, I actually couldn't have written the book 10 years ago. It's uh, only when the technology of transportation started to change. And I was in the Persian Gulf War. People think I had an aha moment, but there was no aha moment to be had because we needed that. Everybody knew that at, at the time that the international economy, the global economy had to, needed that oil. And that was... Uh, Saddam Hussein was uh, trying to trying to get. So um, I started putting the numbers together. My last couple of years as the mayor, and I thought, you know, what what is this? What's oil used for? How can we do this? And is there is there a solution to all this? I, I'm just curious. And there was because now 70 percent of the world's oil is used for transportation. And only very recently, has the technology of transportation changed, how we fuel our cars can change. Uh, it's kind of staring us in the face. And that's, so I started to look more into this and saw the numbers on all of this. Eighty percent of the world's oil reserves are controlled by monarchs, if you will, uh, OPEC and people who control the, really control the supply of oil around the world, just things like that. And with the new technology of cars and trucks, it seems almost too simple, but when you look at the numbers and look at what can be done in that, it really is time to change. And so that's that was – and my mo- motive about this, I'm very open about this, is – I don't want our future military having to spend all that time in the Middle East because the only reason we're in the Middle East is to protect the flow of oil. We took over from the British in the early 70s. We've been doing that for a long time now. Uh, It was part of our international security responsibilities. I understand that. It's just part of what we do. But I think we need to make oil not a critical strategic commodity in the world anymore. And I think we can do that right now because we spend – in 2017, we spent $81 billion. That's the latest figure, $81 billion to protect the flow of oil and infrastructure in the world with our troops.
0: Well, but but there's the other side of the technology, the advances in technology, right, which is that uh, it's projected that last year Illinois – I mean Illinois. The United States will be the biggest producer of crude in the world, surpassing Russia. Uh, Also, I mean Texas alone – produces four times as much oil as Venezuela. So we're we're to a place where we can be energy independent, including with uh, fossil fuels which drive our economy at present, without having to rely on OPEC. I mean we have more in Illinois I was getting to just one other point. I mean we have more inert energy and coal in southern Illinois than Saudi Arabia does oil. So oil and gas, I mean how realistic is it that we're going to move away from uh oil and natural gas?
2: I think it's uh pretty realistic because I say in my book, and I, I've said it for years now, energy, our energy independence is irrelevant. It just doesn't matter. Everybody, th- If you're producing our oil, great, but we only own 2% of the or- world's oil reserves. We're not even the top 10 of countries with oil reserves, so that's not going to play out by itself. But mainly there's three things that will not happen, even if we do use our own oil. First of all, we will still have our troops in the Middle East protecting that oil. That's just what we do, right, because oil is critical for the global economy. We make sure they do that. Terrorists will continue to be funded, even if we produce our own oil, completely, because two-thirds of the oil from the Middle East goes to Asia. Hundreds of billions of dollars from Asia goes to the Middle East. And the other thing is this enormous strategic leverage that these countries, Russia and OPEC, have over the rest of the world uh, will not go away, even if we produce our own oil. Those three things will still be occurring. Our troops will still be over there. We'll still be spending hundreds of billions of dollars here in the near term protect that flow of oil and our troops will be over there even if all the oil that we use in the country But I don't think
1: a lot of Americans know that most of our troops their main job is to protect the flow of oil
2: that's right they don't know that that is exactly right and that's really a big reason why I wrote that book Uh, just recently there's a group called securing America's future energy in DC have 14 four stars retired four stars on there they just came out with an article Q- Q&A arc type of article a couple of months ago. And they've been saying this for a long time now, but John Conway, former commandant of the Marine Corps, one of the questions he asked in there is, why does, why does the United States protect the flow of oil from Iran to China? Really good question. He says, but we do. But that's our job. Uh, and, you know, another question in there says, we tell our troops we're, that we're over there protecting American interests. Right. But if you scratch that just a little bit, that comes up oil. And that's a retired four-star general saying that. We've known this. For a long time, in my book, I, ha- I referenced two War College papers, the best and the brightest going to War College, 2002, 2003, saying essentially this. Well, so,
0: so then, so then, what does that transition away from fossil fuels look like, and how does it proceed?
2: I, I'm I'm only worried about the oil and the influence of the Middle East. I mean, that's what the book is about. Okay. I mean, there the word. Green and sustainable and climate change not in the book at all. Okay, that's not even in the book. Okay, right? so go ahead. No, no,
1: no. Go and finish it So
2: I'm I'm concerned about the influence that these uh, countries have over the rest of the world. I'm concerned that our troops are still over there protecting this critical strategic commodity when we now and just recently now have the technology that allows us to kind of move away from this. You're talking and, about like electric cars. Electric cars, right? Yeah. It, it can't. It can't. It's not going to change tomorrow, but over the next 20 years, it certainly can change because the technology that's moving really quickly on this, and I don't know how much you follow this, but I kind of follow this every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the major countries around the world are saying, we're not going to allow the sale of internal combustion engine cars past 2030 or 2035 or something. They're not going to allow it to happen. So as a result, the car manufacturers are changing very, very quickly on this. I don't know if you've seen this. uh, Ford is... Forty billion dollars into this, Chevy just came out and said, "Hey, we're doing this. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna lead this. All the German manufacturers are doing this. Most most of China, which moves the car market, is doing this. I mean, so this is the part that I think we have an opportunity right here to to change this.
1: Do you think anything that President Trump or his administration could do to to help stop this?
2: Well, probably, but it it goes to this. This really goes back. The 70s, In the presentation that I give regarding this, I go back and talk about all these presidents all the way back to Nixon, the oil embargoes of the 70s. And every president said this, 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 this. And and even with the oil embargoes, our uh, rate of our our dependence on oil was 28 percent. Back in the 70s, during the oil embargoes, it was actually 60 percent in 2006. Despite all the terrorist incidents, despite the Persian Persian Gulf War, despite all these things that were horrible that were happening to us, we actually increased our dependence on foreign oil during all that time. Well, all these presidents, and I'm not not after the presidents, don't get me wrong, but our federal government really is saying, hey, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Just like we're saying right now, hey, we're producing more oil, this is all going to be fine. It's not going to be all be fine. It's not.
0: Right, but some would argue that, look, I mean, we protect our strategic interests around the globe. I mean, so we're concerned about shipping lanes in in the South China Sea, and we're concerned about uh, oil production in um, quasi-friendly nations in the Middle East or North Africa. Uh, even as we're advancing in, in the direction I described earlier. And then the flip side is, you know, the, the challenge is, right, how uh, cost-effective fossil fuel production is compared to some of these alternative energy sources, not just in terms of the cost to produce, but also, I mean, electric cars, these, this market exists largely because it's being subsidized by the federal and state governments, and, lar- and it turns out to be, the middle-income families subsidizing the rich when it comes to electric cars. So there's fairness issues uh, in terms of policy with that.
2: The biggest energy subsidy in the world is that 81 billion dollars that the that or the oil industry. And I don't. I'm not after the oil companies. Yeah, uh, I, I, don't I don't want don't, them to subsidize either. I don't want to mention them in my book at all either. Uh, but the biggest energy subsidy in the world is our protecting the flow of oil around the world. And in 2017, that was. That was $81 billion. The uh, What our companies here get locally on the federal lands and everything, that break they get is huge. Uh, there's a lot of energy subsidies for the oil companies. Yeah. So to, but they should all go the, away, here's the, as would be my <laughs> position. <laughs> well, I okay, I get that. Yeah. yeah. But electricity is ubiquitous. It's absolutely everywhere. I plug my car in at night in the garage like you plug in a lamp or a hair dryer. I mean that's and it trickles in overnight on my plug-in hybrids. That's that's what is here. And electricity is not subject to wild p- price swings like when the uh, Saudi Arabia decides to cut off the supply of oil. So uh, I mean, so there's a lot of stability involved in this. Most of our recessions have included an oil price spike just before. There's so many things to this, uh, but you can't. I mean, I just don't think you can argue the fact that the, these these countries have enormous influence over the rest of the world. They drive the market. There's no free market for oil. I don't know why people think there is. There is none. And that's that's what this is about. And I want to bring the troops home from the Middle East who are protecting that oil. All
1: right. Let's talk about uh, your time in office as mayor of Indianapolis. Two terms. Sure. Did you leave with a budget surplus by any chance? Because we don't know what that's like here.
2: My successor yes. was left more money than any mayor has ever been left with. All right. How much? It was between 130, and 150 million.
1: Oh, well, Dan, that's nice. Yeah, yeah.
0: I don't know, that, that is nice. That left? must be why Indianapolis yeah. is a city on the come is growing, and Chicago yeah. is a city on the wane and is dying. I.
1: And you're familiar with how many people from Illinois are moving to Indiana? There to are. There in are Indiana. few. There are. there's a few. There's somebody in our school in Chicago whose dad. They live in Indi- They live in Indiana and drive to Chicago every day to go to school. Well, it's like, driving in, yeah, it's like right. driving
0: in from Northwest Indiana. like driving from the suburbs. Right, I mean, but I'm saying
1: just because of the property taxes. How are oh, you I able- understand. Yeah. There are companies
2: that have moved from Illinois. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mitch used to really take advantage of all this. As you know, he, he, he came down pretty hard on Illinois quite a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, not as hard as Illinois came down on itself. He was just sort of the exactly. beneficiary
0: because he's our neighbor to the east. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it's, uh, seriously, when you look, so you uh, governed a – substantial American city. When you look at what's happening in urban centers like Illinois, uh, like Chicago, um, and others, uh, Detroit's sort of on the rebound after reorganizing, but Baltimore, other midsize to large cities like Chicago, what's your your impression?
2: I think a lot of the uh, cities have gone through um, what I would call their troubling period with bad government where they thought they could do everything. S- other cities, and some of them have come out on the other side kind of successful. I was, uh, I knew the mayor of Philadelphia, the former mayor, Michael Nutter, pretty good. I sure. think he was mm-hmm. highly educated, great guy, really smart. And, and so I think they were kind of in good hands at that point in time. I don't think Detroit, I mean, Detroit's coming back. I lived in Detroit for three years while I was the mayor, uh, when Coleman Young was the mayor. And it was... Um,
0: well, yeah, well, those are, those are difficult times, <laughs> yes, to try. Like, right, yeah. But
2: that set them up for failure, right, yeah. during all that, because oh, yeah. they were, what they were doing. Uh, I think most cities have gone through that. Indianapolis really never had to go through that, which is great, and I hope it doesn't go through that, but we've never had to go through that, uh, uh, that succession of government that wasn't responsive to what the needs of the city were. So I, but I, there's a lot of that out there, and there, as you, you're seeing right now, there's, it's pretty obvious right now, but we're a little bit more polarized than we have been in the past. And I, I think uh, part of the problem is cities um, don't necessarily respo- respond to what the Republican national ideology would be. There's a reason there's only two or three Republicans in charge of the top 25 cities in the country.
0: Yeah, is there it's even that many?
2: Indiana- well, for a long time, I was the Indianapolis was the largest city yeah. in America with a Republican governor. Yeah, and then uh, San Diego had a mayor that. Democratic mayor who kind of did some horrible yes. things and uh, yeah, uh, yes. remember, <laughs> yes, remember him. Yeah. so they put a Republican governor in there, but a Republican mayor in there. But uh, well, it's just ha- I think Republicans have a ways to go in addressing cities and, and getting their message, which I think could be a very effective message. But it's and I, I've told our senators this, and it's difficult to overcome the national ideology and some of the terminology that's used on the national level, and bring it down to the city. Fair point. He
0: is Greg Ballard, former two-term mayor of Indianapolis. Who, who? Uh, this is another foreign concept here. Self-term limited. He just right. decided eight years was uh, a good and enough. And I love run,
1: what you said because on. you were all in and you had to take a break.
2: I was that, all in and I and that. I would, I, I probably would have got elected again. My numbers were really high, but uh, the, the citizens deserve somebody with. Full of energy and it was all in. I don't think I could do another four years all
1: in. look, he's honest too.
2: Well, maybe I mean, you
0: know, I mean, if you're looking, you know you're kind of nearing retirement. You want a new challenge to take on after you the can. the book. I mean, you know, move to up to Lakeview where Amy lives, and I mean, 2023 is not that far away. No, maybe a run. You know, this is a nice area right here. We're gonna do for <laughs> we're gonna do for uh, Chicago what we did for Indianapolis. I think you'll have some people that'll be supportive think, of that uh, concept. Uh, Greg Ballard also, uh, importantly, should mention, Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel served yeah. 23 years in the Corps. The book, Less Oil or More Caskets, the National Security Argument for
2: Moving Away from Oil. And uh, people can get this on Amazon. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Indiana University Press, who's the publisher.
0: Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Greg Ballard, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate thanks, it. You, Good luck Thank
2: with you. the Thank book. You. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560, the answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today.